The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're wrapping up our series on longings, on how Christ has met our deepest longings by His first uh, advent, by His first coming. But also now we begin to look uh, today, turning it just a little bit and seeing how one of our deepest longings won't be met until Christ returns again. That we have this, this deep, deep, profound desire and longing for something beyond this world. To be home. To be, to be safe. One of my favorite songs of the Christmas season uh, is I'll Be Home for Christmas. The Bing Crosby, 1943, uh, now staple. But just that sense of a soldier fighting for his country away from everything that he understood and knew. That there was no uh, fireplace that year. There was, uh, there was no Christmas table. It was a foxhole. Uh, it was cold and it was dangerous and it was filled with bullets. And there was this deep longing to be home, to be in a place where you were known and accepted in love for who uh, you are. And each of us have that longing. I, I thought through, why does that song resonate with me so deeply? And, and I think in part, it, it's because uh, my family moved around a bit uh, when I was younger. But uh, for me and Lisa, we've been married 22 and a half years and have moved not to this many different locations, cities, but we've moved 16 times uh, in 22 years. And we're not military. <laughs> um, and it, sometimes it's been within the same city, but there's just a lot of movement. And the boys and their desire to find home, uh, of, to be able to answer the question, so where are you from? Where are you from? And to be able to say without a doubt, this is where I'm mean, this is my this is my home. And I remember for so many years, I worked in wonderful churches in Memphis and, and served there, but Memphis was never home. I remember driving uh, back after we were in the Carolinas for Christmas or for Thanksgiving or for a summer vacation and dreading those last couple of hours between Nashville uh, and Memphis of just realizing we're going back to a place, but it's not home. And then being able to come back to the Carolinas and to be here and to be settled and to really be able to say this is home and to enjoy as the boys uh, come back from college and have headed back now. But their favorite part is getting to the bridge and seeing the bridge and knowing, ah, home is just on the other side uh, of that bridge. That this really has become home. But underlying that, there's almost like a worm that's eating at the root. There's something even in the middle of it that goes, this is great and this is home, but I want more. I'm not fully satisfied in this yet. And don't misinterpret that, by the way. I don't need emails this week and say, oh, no, Bill's leaving the church and he's looking at a church. No, what I'm saying is something more, it's more profound than that. I want you to go beyond that temporal, that there's something deep down within each of us it says, I was made for something beyond this world. That, that as much as I enjoy it here, 
It doesn't fully scratch the itch. So there's got to be something beyond that. C.S. Lewis wrote in his wonderful treatment in Mere Christianity these words, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is false. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Lewis was on to something, and he wrote in his great work in Mere Christianity and, and in The Weight of Glory, talking about this deep and profound and created desire within us, this longing within us, this sort of DNA level, uh, spiritually and emotionally and physically, that we know that we're designed to be somewhere else, and that we're not fully home yet. And we spend so much of our life trying to fill uh, that need. We're going to unpack that a little bit uh, this morning. But we spend our lives in this desperate attempt to satisfy this longing of being home, of being complete, of being full, uh, of being, being safe in that way. And so this morning we're going to look at a number of different passages uh, that highlight this in the Scriptures And we're going to hone in on just a couple of simple things. One is that that ultimate longing that we have is for heaven. That longing that's deep down within us is to be in our our complete home is to be in heaven. That this world was never designed to satisfy those needs. It's not a fault of this world. It's that this world was never designed to satisfy uh, that need. And then ultimately, the final thing that we'll look at is how Christ, though, comes And he does satisfy that need, both now and when he ultimately comes again. So the first thing that we see is that we have a longing for heaven. We've been looking over these courses uh, of these last several weeks at these different longings. But today, this final one, we have a longing to be home. We have a longing for heaven. Peter Kreft, the wonderful Roman Catholic theologian, wrote these words. What difference does heaven make? Only the difference between hope and despair in the end, between two totally different visions of life, between chance and the dance. Paul picked up on that idea of heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he wrote these words, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are, are, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our, earth, our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
And Christ speaking to his disciples in John 14, words that I read at the beginning of every funeral that I've ever done. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Or Paul writing to the Christian church in Rome, Romans 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only that creation, but we ourselves, who, have the, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And to the church in Philippi, Peter or Paul wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. But all throughout Scripture, you hear that longing. Creation itself, I don't know how, but if we were to walk outside or we were to go out onto the beach and to look out at the dolphins as they frolicked in the bay, as we watched the pelicans fly, as we watched even the sun rise in the morning and the waves come and the sand and the dunes and the marsh and the hobblollies and all of the beauty of creation, somehow even all of this gorgeous creation that we enjoy down here says groans for freedom from the curse of the fall. That it realizes that there's something affecting it. That there's something that's keeping it from its full glory, from expressing itself fully uh, in how it was designed and how it was made by the creator that it knows that something's going on and all of creation understands that and then how much more would then the pinnacle of creation man and woman made in the very image of the creator himself how much more do we understand that of when Paul was saying I get it this life doesn't satisfy me I'm made for somewhere else my citizenship my homeland, my, my people. I've married a country girl, and I didn't, hadn't really heard that word before. I'm from uh, the city, and I married a girl from Chester County, South Carolina. And we sent out a bunch of invitations. And it was amazing that everyone lived on Route 1, Fort Lawn, South Carolina. And I asked her, I said, how, how, does any, how do you know where on Route 1? Isn't there like a this, that, and this? She goes, Bill, these are my people. She goes, my, my uncle is the postmaster. He knows everyone who lives on Route 1 in Fort Lawn. These are my people. Paul understood something about this world. He understood for him and for all believers that our people, 
Our citizenship, our home, is someplace else. And this world is never going to satisfy us in that. That we have this longing to be with our king. We have this longing to be uh, with our father. We have this longing to be with our brothers and sisters. We have this longing and this desire to ultimately be in the presence of the one whose presence outstrips the presence of any other one. That it's in his presence, in heaven itself, that we desire to be. That we want to be with him. And the descriptions of heaven in the scripture are interesting, aren't they? They're very scant in many ways. And normally they come from a negative point of view. And what I mean by that is this. Normally heaven is described in this way. What it is not. What isn't going to be there. Because I believe what the, the writers of scripture and what the Holy Spirit and all of his wisdom was trying to say was... If I try to explain it to you and give you what it will be like, you're going to mess it up. You're going to put it in your category. So what I'm going to do is actually take away categories for you. I'm going to tell you this. In heaven, there won't be any crying. In heaven, there won't be any more goodbyes. In heaven, there won't be any more cancer and death. There won't be any need for a son. There won't be these things. These things won't be there. It approaches from a negative point of view in trying to say, I want you to take some things out of the way because what I want you to understand, what we need to understand about heaven is it far surpasses even your greatest thought of it. If you can imagine it, then you've already messed it up. If heaven's like what I've imagined, then it's not good enough. It's not worth dying for in this life. It's not worth looking and saying, I'm only of any good to the world around me when my mind and my thoughts are so heavenly minded. That then I can overcome suffering. Then all of the things of this world pale in comparison to the glories of what await me in heaven. You see, the writers of Scripture and God himself behind it was so brilliant. Think about how John described heaven in Revelation. What are the streets of heaven? This isn't a rhetorical question. What are the streets of heaven made of? No, they're not. You've forgotten English 101, a simile. The streets of heaven are like what kind of gold? Anybody remember? Invisible gold. Any of you guys got invisible gold? I don't have invisible. I, 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 I tell people I'm wealthy. Look at all the invisible gold behind me. But they don't believe me for some reason. They don't give me cars based on that. They don't give me houses based on that stuff. They, Clemson won't accept that for tuition payments. But John was saying, no, in my limited categories, in my limited vocabulary, when I look into the glories of heaven itself and what the streets of heaven are going to be paved like, it's going to be as if it was invisible, transparent gold. What he was saying was, I don't know how to describe it. It's beyond my most incredible description. That's why I hate it when people say, when you lose someone and they were a golfer. Oh, this is going to be awesome. That person's going to be up in heaven just playing the best round of golf they've ever had. Or my daddy was a fisherman. Hey, Bill, your daddy's just up in heaven catching all the bass he's ever wanted to catch. I'm like, I hope it's more than that. I hope it's so much more than that. Because if that's all it is, can just sort of leave that. Paul understood that heaven was so good and so outstripped all of his categories. He said, it is not even worth comparing the tribulations and the trials and the afflictions that I am experiencing in this life, which were great, by the way, which Paul could most likely win the, well, I did this 
conversation that junior high students have all the time. Well, I skinned my knee. Well, uh, my humerus stuck out of my arm. Well, I did. Well, I lost a leg, but it grew back. Paul could beat our, well, I suffered today. Paul could say, and he did in Scripture, I was beaten. I was thrown over a wall. I was stoned. I, I was this. I was that. I was all of these things for Christ. But I consider those nothing in comparison to the far surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and knowing the glories of heaven itself. We all have this longing. When you start to talk about heaven, don't you desire to be there? In the last month, have you heard yourself say, I just wish I could be in heaven. Maybe it's driven by a bad event. Maybe it's driven by something else. But deep down within us, we just have this longing to be home. I just want to be home. And people say, oh, well, you want to go to heaven so you can see so-and-so and and see so-and-so. I think that's possibly true to a degree. But for the believer, the greatest desire, I'd love to see my dad again. I'd love to see Lisa and I's three unborn children that we lost uh, in miscarriage. I'd, I'd enjoy seeing that. But the desire of the believer to be in heaven is to see Christ. It's to be in the presence of the one who made me, the one who knows me. As good as my dad was, he wasn't a great dad. He wasn't perfect. So why would I want to spend eternity with an imperfect dad? Oh, but to spend eternity with the creator of my dad and the creator of all of creation who perfected my dad and perfected me and perfected all of God's children through Christ. Oh, I'd love to be in his presence. To hear the voice that spoke into nothing and called all things into being. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome to hear that voice? We had a great meal, by the way. Uh, Probably the best Christmas meal I've ever had. My father-in-law went all out. He brought in the most, it was, you got to love having a father-in-law like that, who basically says this, I'm going to provide all the food and I'm only staying for two days. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) This is glorious. We had truly one of the best meals I've ever had. And you know what happened immediately after it? I can't tell you and describe to you exactly what it tasted like. I've already forgotten it. I can't tell you all of the parts of the meal that made it so great. It's already gone. This world was never designed to satisfy us in those ways. We have a hope for heaven, a desire for heaven, which leads into that. We have this desire, and as Lewis said, God wouldn't give us desires if they weren't meant to be satisfied somewhere. And so, where do we go to find these desires satisfied? Most of us, most of you go to this world to find your your satisfaction. Again, to read another piece of, of Lewis, this from The Weight of Glory, he says this, the books or the music or the meal in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it is only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. What Lewis was saying so eloquently and beautifully 
was that this world, the second major point, this world was not designed to satisfy our longings. Why do you think Paul used that language of we are aliens and sojourners? And so often in Scripture, this world is described in wilderness and desert terms. Why is it that the great feasts of the Old Testament, the great feasts of God's people, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, were feasts to remind God's people of a wilderness experience? To basically say, remember, this world is not your home. This world was never designed to satisfy you. It's a wilderness. It's a desert. And the salient qualities of a desert or a wilderness are this. You cannot catch enough food to satisfy you. You cannot grow enough food to satisfy you. It is in and of itself not able to sustain life. But yet we constantly go back to this world. We go back to it and we demand life from it. And here's a progression that it starts out so often with people. I began my ministries working. I met Lisa when I was working with four-year-olds in a children's ministry. And then I moved up and was working with four-year-old minded kids who were actually middle school aged. Um, and I didn't do real well in that. And then I was hanging out with high school students, and I did college ministry after that. And then I did singles and young professional ministry uh, after that. And I then, as all those kind of young singles got married, I started a married couples ministry and young families ministry. And so I sort of walked down this road, and here's what I find so often. There's a desperate need within our young people to be dating. There's a desperate desire within them that they want to have a boyfriend and they want to have a girlfriend because somehow they think, if I'm established in this relationship, if I can relate and say to people, I'm not alone, then I'm going to be satisfied. And you see boys and girls going from boy to girl, boy to girl, just coming and breaking up and getting together and creating this pattern basically of divorce uh, within their mindset from the very get-go of their adolescent and adult lives, of their desiring to be because they think, oh, if I can just... And then when they get a little older, they think, oh, singleness is just this horrible curse from God. And if I can just get married, then, then I'm going to have satisfaction. Then my deepest longings are going to be met. And so they get married. And then what they find out so often in marriage is it's an incredibly lonely place. And they look to their spouse. Husbands demand of their wives. Wives demand of their husbands. They look to them for life. And they crush one another under the weight of expectation and of need. And so they figure out, oh, well, this is great. This person can't satisfy me, so we'll bring a new person into the world. And that child, oh, if God would just give me a child, then. It's the if-then theology that we basically say, if I can have this, then I'm going to be happy. If God would simply do this in creation, in this world, then I'd be happy. And they have this child. And somehow they come to this realization that every parent does. This child doesn't fully satisfy you, does it? These children disappoint you because they weren't designed to sustain your life. And then what happens so often is that the parents wear their children out under the weight of expectation and of need and of demand. And then they realize, well, this isn't it. And so men... And women very often run into their jobs and their careers and they say, oh, I'll find life. I'll find purpose. I'll find value here. I'll collect more toys than my friend down the street. I'll have more things and I'll have more commas in my net worth. And there I'll find life. 
And we keep demanding of this world and asking of this world. And then we look in the mirror when we hit a certain age and we realize that certain things don't fit the way they used to fit and certain body is just hang a little differently than they used to hang and there's a little more there. And, you know, my sons came home and looked at me and said, Dad, one of your resolutions is going to be getting in shape this year? And I'm like, thanks, guys. Hate to see you go. <laughs> so... But you just realize, and so you look up one day, and you look in the mirror, and you go, wow, I'm not the same man that I used to be. I'm not the same woman that I used to be. And so you think that maybe by changing yourself cosmetically and physically, then, if you change the physical, then you'll be happy and satisfied. And we realize that that doesn't do it either. And what's happening is that all along the way, we're looking at creation wrong, that we're demanding of it something that it was never designed to give us. This world was never designed to satisfy you fully. You're to enjoy it. It's to give you good things, to, to have fun in the midst of, but never to fully satisfy you. That's why the Bible consistently communicates that this world is a wilderness. It will not satisfy your deepest human longings and needs. It will never give you what you need. And when most people begin to experience this wilderness uh, time, when all of a sudden you start to see, well, this doesn't satisfy me, you turn the question to, God, why didn't you? God becomes a villain somehow in the middle of this. God, why did you take this away from me? God, why isn't this what I wanted? I had this career in mind. I had this trajectory for my life, and I'm not, you're not giving me what I know that I need because if I have this, then I'm going to be happy, God. I've never really understood the whole story of Job. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it, if you know what I mean. I understand the conclusion, but I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Because what God was trying to teach Job ultimately was this. Was, Job, you think this world's going to satisfy you, and it's not. And God, in his severe mercy, took Job's family and his wealth and his status and all of those things and Job came out of the other end of that traumatic time. It wasn't light and it wasn't flippant. It was brutal for Job and his wife to go through. I can't even imagine that kind of loss. But at the other end of it, he said, I get it, God. I get it. As long as I have you, and as long as I worship you as my ultimate, as long as you are my king and you're my savior, all this other stuff fades away. I was looking for life and looking for love and looking for all of this in every place that wasn't designed for it. So at the end of the day, Job praised God for God taking away the satisfaction of this world. I wouldn't hope that on any of you to that degree, but I would hope this on all of us, that maybe in 2015, we would be a little less satisfied in the things of this world that distract us from being satisfied in Christ alone. That the things that we think that we have to have in order to be happy, our health, our jobs, our families, all of these things, that maybe we can see that Christ is sufficient enough in the middle of it for us. See, this world was never designed, it was never designed to satisfy our deepest needs. But Christ was, and his coming was, and we're going to end with that today. That Christ came to satisfy our deepest longings. What a better way 
I can't think of a better way to celebrate that than to come to this table. Because Christ says to us, all you who are weak and heavy laden, all you who are desirous of rest, all you who have been disappointed this past year, that 2014 was a tough year for some of y'all. It was a brutal year. And you're worn out and you're worn down. And you're trying to recalibrate how to understand life and you're trying to figure out the things that you had which are no longer there, the things and the dreams and the aspirations that you wanted and you thought that you had to have, you didn't get and you're trying to figure out, Christ is saying, come to me. He said, because in that passage uh, when Paul was writing in Philippians, he said, our citizenship is in heaven and we wait and long for the day when Christ returns and he will transform our bodies. He will come again and it's in Christ and Christ alone that we're going to find that satisfaction. And so we look forward to his coming, his time of being with us. And so he says here at this table, I've come. I've come. Come and drink. Come and eat this meal. Come and ultimately be satisfied at a level in a mysterious way. I don't know what happens. That's just grape juice and that's just bread. But Christ's presence is here. And what he's saying is this. Would you come and dine on me? Not with me, but on me. Would you let me be your life? And not just an add-on on the side. But that he came into this world. That he took on human flesh. And then it says that he resurrected and is in heaven itself and that we are stuck in this age of tension, this time of the already and the not yet where he already came, but he hasn't come back again yet. And so we are in this tension time of waiting and longing for him to come back again. And we look forward to that day. And it's a sure hope is what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, that we have a sure hope. It is the anchor of our soul. And it is rooted and fixed in Christ who is in the holy of holies behind the veil. And he's there saying, I'm there, and I have anchored you to myself, and I will come again one day, and I will bring you home, and I will make all things right and new. But it's only through me that you have to have Christ. Do you want things to make sense a little more in your life? Do you want to have a larger picture, a grander picture of what's going on in the world? And Christ needs to come and intersect your world. And he's challenging us to ask better questions, to go farther and deeper uh, within, I was talking to some college students recently, and I'm not really good at doing this anymore, I guess, because I'm a dad, and I ask all the dad questions, and I was asking these boys, I said, so what did you learn about yourself in your first semester of college? I was really wanting to get deep with them. I mean, I bought them tacos, and I thought, that would get, that really is the entrance into the soul, is Fiesta Fresh Tacos. And you know what the deep and profound understanding uh, that I got from them of that question of what did you learn in your first semester away at college? Well, I don't like 8 o'clock classes. (laughs) Check. (laughs) It's like, wow. It's like, what we need and what you need this year, beginning this very moment, is to challenge yourself to go beyond the simple to ask deeper and more profound questions. Questions that go something like this. God, would you be willing to show me what there is in my life that I'm demanding life from other than you? And would you be so gracious as to remove it from that place in my life? Not remove it necessarily, but to remove it from its place. To put it in its proper place in my life. Now, that's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? 
Because he might answer that and expose some things to you that you don't want to see and hear. And you'll have to be humbled. And sometimes you, won't, you need a friend to come alongside you. And you need to look at that friend and say, what do you see in my life? What do you see in my life that's keeping me from really being fully satisfied in Christ? And allow that friend or spouse to challenge you in that way. And at the end of the day, what hopefully you'll find is you'll find Christ. Because he said to the disciples there in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going, and in my Father's house are many rooms in his mansion, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. But the only way you get to go there is through me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to heaven. No one gets to that place of ultimate and deep and profound satisfaction without coming through me first. So folks, today, wrestle with Christ. Deal with him. And allow him to satisfy you and begin your year more nourished than you've ever been. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you even for the difficulties of the day. When things are taken from us or we lose things that we thought we had to have. And I pray that, God, you will, you will shape us and show us uh, our need of Christ. As we come to this table now, Father, would you bless us with that very, your very presence? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.